0: I'm Eliza Barkley, Vox's science, health, and climate editor. This April, our podcasts are teaming up to cover some of the most important issues threatening life on Earth. From sustainability to biodiversity to straight-up cool things about the natural world, we'll focus on our planet and its limits in episodes throughout the month. Tune in to Today Explained, Vox Conversations, The Weeds, Unexplainable, Worldly, Future Perfect, and Vox Quick Hits. Want to listen to all the shows? Find them at vox.com slash Earth Month. Welcome to Future Perfect. I'm Sigal Samuel. A growing contingent of young people are refusing to have kids or are considering having fewer kids because of climate change. Maybe you've heard of birth strikers The women who've announced that they won't procreate until the world gets its act together on climate. Maybe you haven't made such a clear pronouncement yourself, but you're kind of wondering if maybe the climate crisis should shape your big lifestyle decisions too. For people who are worried about having kids in the era of climate change, there are usually two main concerns. The first is that having a kid will make climate change worse because adding a kid to the planet means adding another person who will cause more carbon emissions, plus their kids, plus their grandkids, and so on. The second concern is that having a kid now dooms that child to a miserable life on a miserably hot planet. To help us think through these concerns, we're joined by Dr. Kimberly Nicholas, an associate professor of sustainability science at Lund University in Sweden. She's written over 50 articles on climate and sustainability in peer-reviewed journals, and she gives dozens of lectures each year. Her new book, Under the Sky We Make, explores the most effective things we can do to fight climate change and how to find meaning in that fight and in a warming world. Kimberly, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. So before we talk about concern number one, let's rewind to the year 2017. You ran a study that found that the most useful thing individuals can do to reduce their carbon footprint is not driving less or eating less meat. It's having fewer kids. So can you just briefly explain how you
1: reached that conclusion? Sure. So in that 2017 study, Seth Wines and I wanted to answer the question, what can an individual in a high-emitting country do to make a difference for climate change in our personal lives? And what we came to was kind of a two-part answer. The most urgent and important thing that we need to do is cut today's emissions fast. And what does that is going car, flight, and meat-free. So those are the main sources of emissions for high-emitting individuals, and that's where our personal behavior change can really make a difference. But as you mentioned, there's a fourth factor that in the long term, over many generations, has an even bigger impact, and that's the choice to create another child.
0: And how did you measure this? How did you figure out that this was indeed the biggest difference an individual can make to the planet?
1: So we did a study of studies, and that means we relied on the hard work of a lot of other folks who've been working on this for a long time. So we assembled a bunch of peer-reviewed studies, carbon calculators, and wanted to compare apples to apples. So we converted everything into the same measurements. We looked at the full life cycle. Uh, So for example, if we're talking about food, that means farm to fork, the whole effect along the whole chain that your choices make. And if we're talking about creating a new person, that means not only the decision to make a child, a new child, and the emissions that will entail under today's rates, but also the likelihood that that child will go on to have children of their own and carried forward many generations. And that's one reason that that number was so big and that in the long term over many generations had the biggest impact. Okay, tell me how the public and the media reacted to that. So we do advocate in the paper that people need accurate information. And actually the main point of the paper and what was actually new from a science standpoint was that we showed that both government recommendations and high school science textbooks actually didn't contain the information that was needed. They talked much more about low-impact climate actions, like recycling, and very little, if at all, about these high-impact actions that are much more important, like going flight, car, and meat free. Um, But on the other hand, we did say, okay, we know we need to make fundamental changes in countries like the US that have an overconsumption problem with carbon. And we really need to be conveying this information all along. And I think young people are, are ready for this information and are at a point in their lives where they can make use of it.
0: I am curious, given that people have such sort of emotional attachments and really strong feelings about childbearing, did you get any pushback or
1: any like strong reactions from the public or the media? We did get a lot of strong reactions, and I think we tried... Our best to prepare for that and be clear about what our findings said and didn't say. So, for example, we were always really clear: this is information. We hope people use it to make their own informed personal choices. We're not advocating for any kind of uh, policy when it comes, especially to the choice to have a child. I mean, that's a fundamental human right. And I think personally, we didn't get into this in the paper, but you know, protecting that the freedom of that right is really at the core of the importance of stopping climate breakdown in time. I mean, having a society where people have human rights and make free decisions is uh, completely essential for us going forward. So I think we didn't get into that in the paper. I mean, we kind of uh, showed, okay, here are comparisons of the emissions between different personal choices. Um, And as I said, our focus was really on what kind of communication is being done around this but certainly the the main media focus at the time and for some time afterward was focusing on this message about um, the carbon impact of having a child and i think you know if you read the paper we say carbon something like 47 times and we never talk about uh, abortion or euthanasia for example that was not at all the topic of our paper but then you can read a blog post that takes that up and accuses that of being our secret agenda for example so I think people can really read information through the lens of their pre-existing beliefs.
0: Yeah, I was really struck by the part in your new book where you talk about folks, you know, how how they reacted to your paper and sort of like resorted to these tropes of environmentalists hate babies, you know, by this logic, we should all just commit suicide. And of course, you're not saying that, but there was sort of that, that kind of like emotional backlash. Um, but what I think is really interesting about your work, one of the things I really think is interesting, is that despite you and your colleagues being the ones who ran this study that, that produced this finding, that having one fewer child can have the greatest uh, positive individual impact for the climate, you still say that people should totally have kids if they really want to be parents. So how do you square that circle?
1: Well, one thing it's really important to realize is that population is actually irrelevant to solving the climate crisis. And the reason for that is that we only have the next few years to solve the climate crisis reasonably well. We know that we have this limited carbon budget that determines how much warming we're going to experience. The more carbon pollution in the atmosphere, the more warming, and the more suffering and harm. So we're really close to really scary and dangerous limits right now. And we know what we have to do, which is leave fossil fuels in the ground and switch to regenerative and sustainable agriculture. That's what our job is, basically, in this next decade. That's how we will manage to avoid catastrophic climate change. And those of us who are alive today are already (laughs) numerous enough and consuming enough and producing enough emissions that you know we have less than this decade to get that job done. So in that sense, creating new people. Well, yes, of course it is true that more people um, will consume more resources and cause more greenhouse gas emissions. Um, that's not really the relevant time frame for actually stabilizing the climate, given that we have you know this decade to cut emissions in half. Got it. So
0: you know what my potential future grandchildren or great grandchildren will do will emit. Um, is not super relevant to the critical hinge moment we're at now, uh, where in the next few years, we're really going to decide whether we just tip those dominoes um, of of emissions in a way that just triggers catastrophe. I have to ask, because I know listeners are going to naturally wonder this,
1: do you yourself have kids or plan to have kids? I don't. And for me, that's a decision I'm happy with. But as you mentioned earlier, I think it's really important for people to weigh that question for themselves. And um, that's something I've had a lot of really interesting conversations because people have approached me after publishing this paper with some uh, very intimate and revealing conversations, actually. So some folks have said thank you for publishing this paper. I know for me, child free is the best choice. I've always known this, but I get social pushback or, you know, my mom wants grandkids or whatever. And now I can say, look, mom, science says, you know, this is, this is supporting my choice. Um, And conversely, there are people who say, this really puts it in perspective for me. Of course, you don't need a scientist to tell you the decision to have a child is a big one. I mean, it's one of the biggest decisions in life. And that's true for the long-term climate impact, as well as for pretty much every aspect of your life, I think. But um, knowing that, some people then react and say, well, that is what it's all about for me. That's what makes my life make sense and have meaning. And that's what I want to pursue. And, you know, I I write in the book about the example of um, Kia Chatterjee, who decided with her partner, she wanted to have a child, but she wanted to reduce her household carbon footprint at the same time. So typically what happens, the data show is when people have a child, they tend to increase their emissions. They tend to drive more, for example, and eat more meat. Um, And this is reflected in experience of friends that I, I see around me as well. But they made this really conscious decision, okay, we want our family to be different. And they made choices to stay in the city where they didn't need a car, to add solar panels, to reduce their frequent flying. And through these decisions, they actually shrunk their household carbon footprint after adding a child. So I think there are some really inspiring examples, and certainly parents have a very good reason to care about the climate and fight for a good future. Yeah,
0: it's, it's kind of funny. It sounds like, you know, have you found yourself being thrust into this strange position of almost playing therapist to strangers who are wondering whether they should have kids or not and are kind of turning to you for advice on this really personal decision?
1: Yes, I have. And that is a real privilege. And I think that's not only because of this study, but I think because people are coming to this existential moment of reckoning with the climate crisis and feeling how it really affects everything in our daily lives and everything that we love and care about. So it's not, I have had some conversations, um, one of which I write about in the book, a man named Jake, who wrote me from the UK, and we had kind of a climate counseling session around he and his wife considering a second child But I have those kind of conversations actually pretty frequently because people are wrestling with not just this decision, but other big decisions in their lives and trying to figure out, okay, what does it mean to live a good life right now at this critical moment? How can I be part of this epic and essential project that humans need to stabilize the climate now to have a good life going forward? So yes, it it is a really interesting window into what people are thinking about.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I want to come back later to... What you tell folks in these sort of uh, you know quasi therapy sessions, um, what you advise them, but I want to talk first about um, the the whole premise that having one fewer kid is the best uh, way that you can actually help reduce your your carbon footprint and help the planet. Last year, the nonprofit Founders Pledge put out a report saying it's just not true that having fewer kids is the best way to help the climate. Um, it says that the problem with most studies is that they don't account for future changes in government policy, but climate policy will almost definitely get way stricter over the course of our kids' and grandchildren's lifetimes, and that'll constrain the amount of carbon that they will be able to emit. So, you know, they say that, therefore, it doesn't make sense to run this sort of calculation you've run where, you know, you, you're you counting my emissions, my kids' emissions, my grandkids' emissions, based on historical rates. What do you think of that argument?
1: I think some of it is fair. I mean, so the study that we drew from, um, as I mentioned, we combined other existing studies to compare apples to apples in, in our 2017 study. And the study that we drew from to look at the climate or carbon legacy of having a child made some assumptions, one of which, as you mentioned, was if emissions from each new person stay the same as they are today. I I would push back a little and say I don't think we can treat it as inevitable that that's not the case. I mean, right now governments are reducing emissions 10 times too slowly to meet our Paris agreement goals. So we are not doing nearly enough and we are really in danger of completely missing those goals if we don't seriously start cutting fossil fuels. But I do think, and of course I'm working for, a world in which, yes, we succeed in cutting emissions quickly and then it will be true that each new person creates substantially fewer emissions. That said, I mean, it still is always going to be one of the biggest decisions and probably the a big long-term climate impact, uh, even if everything else gets more efficient and policies limit emissions and so on. But it will have a climate impact to create a new person. But again, I think that is a different kind of moral calculus, certainly, than you know, it's not a human right to drive an SUV or fly in planes. But It is a human right to have a child.
0: The Founders Pledge argument, or their their sort of alternative model that they develop, what they did is that they then sort of try to project, okay, based on what these different governments are promising in terms of their climate targets, actually, if we take these future likely policy changes into account and we rerun the numbers, then the positive impact of having one fewer child really shrinks a lot. It still looks like a good way to reduce your your carbon footprint, but it it no longer dwarfs the other options like going car-free, less flying, not eating meat. But, you know, I do think like their their findings also have to be taken with a grain of salt because simply put, governments don't always keep their promises, right? So just because they say we have these climate targets doesn't mean they're going to meet them. So that model is in the tricky uh, business of making these projections about the future and then, you know, running that, those numbers into their model. So, I mean, is it kind of reasonable to guess that the truth as it ends up shaking out might be somewhere between what you've projected based on the historical data and what they're projecting based on these likely future policies?
1: Well, I think the evidence is pretty clear. It's always going to be a big climate decision to have a child and that will always outweigh flying in planes or driving cars or eating meat but I mean in one sense that shouldn't be a big surprise because of it's such a bigger (laughs) decision and and such a more important decision and more meaningful decision than you know what kind of car if any do I have or changing light bulbs or something like this so it will always be a big long-term impact but as I said I think It's not the way that we're going to solve, you know, reducing population is not the way that we're going to solve the climate crisis. Basically, what the evidence shows is that when women are given opportunities in society, so when education and equality are increased, women tend to choose to have smaller families. And that has a side benefit in reducing climate pollution. But I'm not saying we should educate girls and empower women as a climate strategy because we should have a world where women and girls are equal and have opportunities because that's the kind of world I want to live in. As a side benefit, that will be a healthier and happier world and it will have uh, it will have lower climate pollution as a side effect.
0: Yeah, this discourse about climate and population growth uh, and educating girls often gets really tricky, right? Because sometimes People can use it to argue for population control, like in in poor regions, let's say. Um, And some big mainstream climate groups in the U.S., like Project Drawdown, for example, do talk a lot about the importance of educating girls and getting them access to family planning services as a way to help the climate. Um, But since most rich countries like the U.S. already have super low birth rates, that argument seems like it would disproportionately affect people of color in the developing world. And is that unfair given that rich countries are the ones who created the climate crisis, not these other countries?
1: Yes, I mean, there's so much that is unfair about the climate crisis. And this whole dynamic is so unfair that in so many ways, those who have done the most to cause the problem are the furthest away from its impacts. I think there is a really ugly history with the discussion of population. And um, I could actually recommend this short podcast called So Overpopulation." I learned a lot from listening to that. It's just two episodes. But for me, that was very interesting to put this history into a a bit of context and kind of understand some of the evolution of how environmental groups, for example, have talked about or not talked about population. And it is a very sensitive and personal issue. And there's so many ways that it can go wrong. So, I mean, I think that's why, for example, Project Drawdown puts educating girls in the category of improving society. They don't count it as, um, it's different than, you know, solar panels or electric cars. It's like, this is something that we need to do to live in a better world and to meet other sustainable development goals. And it will likely have a side benefit for the climate, but it's not really the right way to think about it as a a climate strategy.
0: That that's fair. Like, so thinking about the climate benefits as, as almost sort of like bonus fringe benefits, but, uh, you know, rather than saying, hey, we're going to tell people to have fewer kids, uh, especially in developing countries, uh, as a climate strategy.
1: Right. I mean, put another way, if for some reason, and this is not the case, but if for some reason educating girls caused climate pollution to go up, it would still be the right thing to do. Yes. And we would need to cut that climate pollution in another way. So, I mean, the, the needle we need to thread right now is making the world livable and really thrivable for everyone, all the people on Earth, but also for all life on Earth uh, and a stable climate. That's what we're trying to get to.
0: Yeah, and I think it's worth, like, re-highlighting. I think you were sort of getting at this a bit before. The fact is that having fewer kids is not going to magically save the climate, right? If you and I and all of our friends just decided to have zero kids that is not going to save the climate. The major big thing that needs to happen is the major factor is how quickly our countries go off fossil fuels, right?
1: Yes. I mean, I think that's where we need to be focusing our efforts. And in the book, I write about the decision whether to have children and uh, friends and people who've contacted me who wrestle with that decision is in the middle section, which is about feelings and meaning and not in the Third section, which is about climate action and reducing emissions, because I do think it's, um, yeah, it can be tricky to really compare those emissions in a a way that's meaningful. I mean, we sort of need to make a good life possible for everyone who is here now and will be in the future.
0: Just to come back to the Founders Pledge study for a moment, when they developed their alternative model that does account for likely future changes in government policy, They found that on on that model, there is another super effective thing that individuals can do aside from, you know, eating less meat or flying less or having fewer kids. And this one tends to get a lot less play in these conversations, but maybe is really important, and that's donating to super effective climate charities. So on their model, it turns out that donating $1,000 to really effective climate charities like the clean air task force for example has a much bigger positive impact on climate than having one fewer kid. What do you make of that claim?
1: I'm a little cautious of their specific findings just because if first of all they're not a peer-reviewed study and they are a charity that is directing charitable donations. But that said, I do think it's meaningful and important to make charitable donations and I do it myself. But I don't think of it in terms of specifically the tons of carbon saved, and here's why. What we actually need to get to climate stability is for high emitters like me to reduce our own personal emissions. There's a group of 10% globally who cause half of all climate pollution. So the cutoff is about $38,000 per year in income. That puts you in the top 10% of earners globally. And the further above that you are, the, the more likely you have really high climate pollution. So for us in that group we do need behavior change and that's where personal climate action does make a big difference and is actually necessary to meet for example the 1.5 degrees climate target. At the same time that is um we also need system change and at the moment our economic and political and cultural systems are all pretty much pointed in the wrong direction because we are not moving fast enough. We're not divesting, taking our money away from fossil fuels and investing in clean energy. We're not reducing consumption, improving efficiency, all the things we know we need to do. So in that sense, it is important to take our money out of big banks that are funding fossil extraction and continuing exploration and donate um, or invest money in clean energy and also to donate and support groups that are pushing for this. And that's something I do myself. I don't think of it in terms of tons saved per dollar, in terms of a charitable donation. I think that gets too close to offset thinking. It makes us think that I can continue to totally overconsume my share of the pie if I'm paying someone else to do the hard work for me. And that's a real justice issue. That's often someone who is younger or poorer or more marginalized in some way. uh, And I think that's really unfair. And also it doesn't work. I mean, studies show that offsets themselves are not effective. Uh, Most of them, there was a study recently that found only 2% of the offsets studied actually caused emissions reductions that would not have happened otherwise. So we know we need to get to zero carbon pollution. That is what it will take to stabilize the climate. So there's just no room for us to continue over-consuming and expect other people to consume even less than they already are elsewhere. It just doesn't work out. The math doesn't work.
0: Right. I just want to clarify. So, you know, in that Founders Pledge report, what when they say, oh, donating money to effective climate charities uh, has a huge positive impact on climate, they mean that by funding a group like the Clean Air Task Force, which fights to reduce pollution, th- they're based in the U.S., you know, we know that group has a super great track record of actually pushing for policies, um, you know, getting legislation passed that has Resulted in big emissions reductions, um, you know, by targeting you know various companies and and like working on this big scale, uh, and so you know my let's say hundred dollar donation could feed into this thing where then lots of metric tons of of carbon are being reduced uh, through these these policy changes that the charity is is uh, causing to be enacted. It's not that they are actually technically uh, doing. Carbon offsets, which we typically think of more as like, oh, I'll plant this tree and that'll compensate for me taking an airplane, which definitely is problematic. Carbon offsets, as you said, frequently don't work as advertised. This is a little bit different than that because it's you know funding groups that are advocating for huge policy changes. Um, but I do understand what you're saying. It can be misinterpreted as telling the individual, if you make a donation to one of these effective charities, you can consider that as quote-unquote offsetting your need to make reductions or behavior changes in your personal lifestyle choices, right?
1: Right. Yeah, thank you. That's an important clarification. So I would say, I mean, we know that the the carbon budget for each of us by 2030 is 2.5 tons per person per year. That's where we need to be at globally if we're going to meet the 1.5 degree goal. And we know that that is really critical for people and nature. That is way below where we are now. I mean, In the U.S., uh, the highest earners are something like 50 tons per person per year. And that's why we need behavior change from that group because we need to reduce overconsumption as well as make all these social changes so that basically there's enough to go around that everyone has their needs met. But at the same time, we've made this transition quickly, and we just can't meet that level of excessive demand. So I think, especially, I just want to be clear that there is a group that includes me, and I have made many of these changes myself, that do need to make personal behavior change, as well as use our money to um, support the kind of transition that we want to be a part of, both Politically and financially and culturally. And that is really important. I do think it is problematic, especially in a non peer reviewed study, to attribute specific amounts of tons to a dollar, because I think that sometimes creates some perverse incentives. Which I think if we over rationalize how we think about charities and NGOs, for example, it incentivizes um, some of the wrong things. I mean, it might, for example, it makes it look more effective to invest in technology rather than in social movements and social change. And personally, I think that's problematic and the data have shown that it's often not as effective as you think and it doesn't scale as well as you think. Uh, So I think that's a concern that I have with that kind of thinking of trying to look for, you know, return on ton of carbon per dollar of charity. I think we should be finding groups that are working in ways that are in line with our values and actually meeting really important needs that governments are not. And supporting them, even if they're not, um, you know, if they're working at a more systemic level, they might not show as many tons reduced per dollar, but they're actually enabling the kind of tipping point that will make those transitions possible. Yeah, I
0: think that's a great point. I'm curious if you worry at all, though, that telling people to focus on their individual lifestyle choices, like not flying or not having an extra kid, does that in some sense maybe distract us from the bigger uh, political policy, systemic changes we need to be making where we, um, you know, maybe should be focusing our energy and attention on fighting for the big win, which would be a mass transition to clean energy sources, which would come through changes in government policy.
1: The group I'm trying to reach is this group that includes me and my friends from college who are in this top 10%, and it includes many Americans, actually, So I think that it is important to be honest about the need for reduced overconsumption in that group. I'm not worried about that being a distraction because it is actually important and necessary. And I think it's a problem if it gets trivialized because consumers' households are about 70 or a little over 70% of total greenhouse gas pollution. You can look at it another way and say that fossil fuel companies are over 70%. Both of those statistics are correct. So it depends if you attribute responsibility to the production or the consumption of fossil fuels. And in no way am I letting fossil fuel companies off the hook. I mean, they get plenty of ire (laughs) in the book. It's well known and documented that there have been really infuriating and devastating misinformation campaigns. And, you know, the business plans of the big oil companies are not compatible with avoiding catastrophic climate change. So they are um, a very big and important target and making this transition very quickly to leave fossil fuels in the ground is absolutely essential. But that means we have to stop both the production and the consumption of fossil fuels.
0: Right. So so people in that income bracket like you and I, we're providing the market for those fossil fuel companies. So, so you're saying we need to sort of withdraw our market support for that so that that kind of production doesn't... Happening,
1: we need both to stop this overconsumption, which is feasible for those of us who are in this really high income group. I mean, if we talk about flying, for example, it's only one percent of the global population who flew in the year before the pandemic. Obviously, now the situation is different, but most people on earth have never been on a plane, and most people, even in the US and Germany, didn't fly in the year before the pandemic. So, it's actually really an unusual activity to fly, but those of us who have flown or do fly, one percent of the global population causes half of the pollution from flying. So that's an example of how we have this really uh, unequal distribution of emissions that we have to actually address and reduce overconsumption in that way. At the same time, we absolutely need government and policy changes, and those are really important. What I've seen personally is that people tend to, I think, I think the people who want to focus only on policy change um, tend to be those who are already very engaged in that work themselves and see what needs to be done. And I think there might be sometimes a a gap where they don't realize how far away that feels for most people. Most people do not know what that means or looks like. So that's why I try to really break it down to what I personally as a citizen, what you can do in my book, because it is about organizing and using the power that we already have. And for those who are in positions where they're writing policy briefs for politicians and decision makers, yes, they have a really critical and essential role to play, but there's not that much that the average citizen can do to to help them in that particular work of, you know, formulating exactly what policy should be. But we have a lot of power in the neighborhoods where we live, in advocating for cities and streets built for people and not cars in getting together in our workplace to demand changes in our uh, our organization's policies. And that can and does scale up to bigger political and economic levels.
0: Okay, so it's not individual or system change, it's both and. I think we're gonna take a short break, but when we come back, we're gonna talk about the other big question that some people might be worrying about, which is, Is it wrong to have kids now knowing that you're dooming them to a pretty bleak future? It's loud, deafening, cacophonous. It's a nightmare. Oppressive.
1: And just what is it that many people think is pretty nightmarish and yet are still willing to shell out quite a bit of money for a night out at a restaurant?
0: Sound is the number one complaint that diners have about their experience. So why are restaurants so loud and
1: when did that start happening? Is there anything anyone can do to fix it? We've got the answers on the latest episode of Gastropod. All
0: that plus the science behind the perfect playlist to accompany your meal. This special episode is part of our new collaboration
1: with the podcast Switched on Pop. Find Gastropod and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
0: There's a second fear driving some of the young people who've decided to forgo childbearing. So let's talk about concern number two, that having a kid in this day and age dooms that kid to a pretty miserable life. When people raise that concern with
1: you, what do you say to them? This is a conversation I'm having more and more, and I think I can provide some context and information on what climate predictions look like and, you know, what kind of impacts we can expect at different levels of temperature change. But people have to go within themselves and look at their own priorities and values. And that's something, I mean, I can listen to, but I don't have the answers for that, because that obviously varies for everybody. And I think that combination is really important for people to investigate and um, give themselves the space to interrogate and be curious about their own priorities and values. And for example, what does it mean to have a meaningful life? What would be necessary for yourself and a future child to have a meaningful life? And when you ask questions in that way, I think it can be helpful in framing, approaching that decision.
0: Yeah, you mentioned in your book the uh, example of a a friend, uh, a young woman who sort of took a, a quiet weekend out of the city, kind of went out somewhere in nature uh, by herself and let her mind get really quiet and then asked herself simply, do you want to be a mother? And the answer that just sort of sprung up in her mind, like instantaneously was a resounding yes, um, that that felt like a core part, an essential part of what would make her life feel meaningful and would make the story of her life make sense to her. And it sounds like in the book, you sort of say like, power to her, like, great, right? If if that's, if that's a crucial part of what would make life feel meaningful to her, then you think she should go for it.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's not my place to decide, obviously. But yes, I mean, that is my view on how, how I would like people to approach this decision or how I, I recommend approaching it. And for my friend Michelle, as you mentioned, I mean, she did have this really... Um, powerful experience where she did feel really drawn to becoming a mother and, and ch- you know, ch- was able to choose that path. So I think for folks who have that, um, that feeling or, you know, a friend put it as like a child-shaped hole in my heart, yes, I mean, those are people who want to and, and should become parents. But I do think it's a, a fraught and a difficult decision right now, because we do see the devastating impacts of climate change already. I mean, my family has been affected by the wildfires in Northern California, uh, which have been absolutely catastrophic. They were evacuated in 2017. Thankfully, they were safe, but we have many friends and neighbors who lost homes and everything, basically. And we know those fires are made worse and more likely and bigger and more dangerous by human-caused climate change. That's just one example that's touched me personally, but everyone by this point has been affected by climate change if, whether or not you realize that every place on earth has already been affected so I think it it is a difficult reality to face to realize that we are making fundamental changes to the planet and that we do have this really short and critical window to to stabilize the climate
0: and for people who are thinking about maybe becoming parents, do you think in some sense this Decision-making comes down to a philosophical question of what does a parent owe their child? Like, if you believe it's a parent's duty to give their kid a life that contains more happiness than suffering, or, you know, if you think a parent's duty is just to provide food and shelter and basic necessities, that might influence your thinking here. Is it like, once you get clear on what you think you would owe any kid that you brought into this world... Does that maybe help you make projections about whether you feel you'll be able to deliver that even in a world of climate breakdown? That's a great question.
1: Yes, there are many philosophical questions, and I'm um, a little bit part of a group on climate ethics, intergenerational climate ethics, with some philosophers in Stockholm, and those are very fun people to have long (laughs) conversations into the evening with. I mean, it partly depends on, as you said, what motivates people to have children and what they think um, their role or obligation as a parent is and sort of what they're prepared for. I mean, entering into parenthood, there's so much that's unknown, right? I mean, friends have described it as like a lifelong exercise in relinquishing control. (laughs) So, I mean, um, there's a lot that is out of your control. And I think parents have a very direct confrontation with that in the, the daily lives of their kids, but also, I mean, living through this time now in this really critical moment for the climate is a big part of it. I mean, I think to a conversation I had with um, Maya Rosen, who's the, uh, uh, the founder of the Staying on the Ground organization here in Sweden, this flight-free organization, and which she started when her second child was born and she was home on parental leave. And so for her, I think this issue of climate activism and personal and collective change are really deeply entwined with her own experience of being a parent and, you know, motivated among other things by her love for her children and her wanting to provide a better world for her kids. But we did have the conversation where, you know, she said, I think my kid's life has been meaningful, you know, even as a toddler, even if something terrible happened, if they got hit by a bus tomorrow or whatever, you know, like their life has had value and meaning for the fact that it's been here until now. And I think thinking about, you know, what really... Yeah, what you expect and can feel is your obligation. I mean, I think it's also, I don't find it compelling for uh, the argument that, oh, we need more people like, quote unquote, us, whoever that may be, to solve climate change. I mean, I think I don't like the idea of putting even more of a burden on future generations to solve this problem that we adults have been avoiding or delaying. Right. So you mean like progressive
0: climate conscious young people who are like, I really care about the climate. And if I have a kid, I would educate them to really care about the climate. And we need more babies like that.
1: I don't find that compelling. I mean, first of all, um, my <laughs> parents are Trump voters. So there's no guarantee that your kids are going to be you know, exactly the same climate um, spectrum that you are. Right. Secondly, it's just not a time efficient strategy. I mean, if we need to cut emissions in half by 2030, and if you're contemplating right now whether to have a kid, I mean, your kid will be learning to ride a bike by then. I don't think that it's fair to put this burden of, you know, this global problem on their shoulders and expect them to be the ones to solve it. That's just not how it works.
0: Totally. And in when people are thinking about whether they feel they'll be able to provide a sufficiently stable future for a kid they might have, do you think? concerns about not being able to provide a stable future like that are most salient for low-income people, people of color, people in developing countries, because they will be hardest hit by climate change. Is this, to what extent is this something that actually everyone needs to be pretty worried about, given, even if they're in a higher income bracket or they live in, you know, New York or whatever?
1: I actually heard some, um a man from New York um, say, you know, three degrees of warming, three degrees Celsius of warming will be inconvenient for me. And I thought that was profoundly wrong, because that is a planet full of misery and suffering. And I don't really think anyone is going to be okay on the current trajectory that we're on. I don't think money is enough sufficient to basically shelter us from Um, the brunt of climate breakdown. So I think everyone does need to be worried about this. And to me, that's really like a big kick in the pants that, okay, this is the most important thing we need to do and we need to get on with doing it and do what's necessary to actually get it done. And that's, as we've been discussing, both personal changes for high consumers, but also these social and political and economic changes. I'd love for you to just
0: like spell that out for us a little bit more. You know, that guy in New York, maybe he's thinking to himself, eh, it's a little inconvenient. I'll just have to run my air conditioner a bit more. Um, Just explain why even for someone like that, um, who, you know, might be considering having kids, but they're like a richer person in New York or whatever, why the like 3 degrees more of warming might make their and their future kids lives pretty miserable too.
1: Well, we know for that much warming, it will feel that's a global average and people live on land and not in the oceans and uh, the climate warms more over land than oceans. So that's something like a 7 degree on average for what a person would experience. So that you can compare to the difference from moving to from Vancouver to New York City. It is just a fundamentally different world, and in the kind of time frame that we're talking about, then the changes that that would incur. I mean, many of us, our daily lives are quite um, far away from nature, but guess what? We rely on nature to live. We need a functioning planet with our life support systems to provide air and water and food. And materials and all these completely basic things that right now we might take for granted, but are not a given to be continued um, and produced in in a sustainable and ongoing way if we have a real breakdown in the climate system. So that is why it is just so critical. And this decade is so important to make the transitions to get off of fossil fuels, because we are the last ones who can really do that well and and actually avoid some of these catastrophic impacts.
0: Right. So that guy in New York, sorry to pick on you, hypothetical, faceless, nameless guy in New York, but the three degrees of warming for him, that could mean, you know, not being able to get like the certain foods that he's used to. Uh, I guess it could also mean, though, that like kind of big changes in, you know, your country's policy could change if you have Uh, A lot of, like, refugees now due to climate, your country might have an influx of refugees. Your country might be, like, resource-strapped in different ways. Um, I think there's, like, a lot of these sort of domino effects that people who are consider themselves pretty safe and inured from the damage of climate change don't necessarily think about. Totally. And, I mean,
1: so the idea of climate refugees, I think, um, can be problematic because it can have this idea that oh these others are coming from somewhere else that we don't want here wherever that may be but something that really struck me is that when um, during one of the catastrophic fires in my hometown of Sonoma north of San Francisco one of my friends wrote on Facebook climate refugees 50 miles north of San Francisco so I mean it's not just people from somewhere else or far away who are are being and will be affected by climate breakdown. It is us. It's our, ourselves and our friends and neighbors. And I mean, going back to New York, um, sea level rise is a really scary threat. And that's a really critical reason why this 1.5 degree goal is so important because um, beyond that, we're getting into real risks of major sea level rise that one of the studies I cite in my book talks about, you know, a, a huge influx from the coasts to the center of the U.S., actually, as a potential consequence of catastrophic sea level rise. And, you know, those, you know, maybe potentially the, the guy from New York could find himself as a climate refugee. So that's far more than an inconvenience. I mean, these are really fundamental disruptions.
0: Right. You talked about uh, potentially like lower Manhattan, Battery Park, uh, you know, Red Hook and other neighborhoods in Brooklyn being underwater. All of this is making it sound like, okay, even pretty well off individuals in countries like the US should be pretty damn worried about, you know, the future and having kids bringing them into this kind of future. I think it's kind of worth noting, though, that this isn't the first time in history that a generation has had to ask whether having kids is wise or morally acceptable. Lots of people were asking themselves the same questions during the Cold War, when the the fear of nuclear annihilation was at a fever pitch. Um, A lot of Black people in the U.S. have had to ask it too, you know, having worries about bringing kids into a really violently racist system. And just the other day, my dad actually told me that when he was my age and living in Jerusalem— he and his friends used to worry that maybe it was immoral to have kids because what if the radiation from Chernobyl reached them? Uh, which I'd never heard him say before, but uh, that that really struck me. And so I kind of wonder how we should think about this because on the one hand, we truly are at this unique moment in history. On the other hand, people often seem to feel that way. So maybe that shouldn't stand in our way.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And there are many examples from history of people in really dire situations who are faced with the decision of whether to have children. And I think it does come back then to this kind of values and priorities that, you know, for those for whom who have this choice, I think even in very difficult situations sometimes will make it. I mean, I have dear friends, one of whom was diagnosed with terminal cancer when he was 37 or he, he died at thirty seven, so it was a bit before that. And he and his wife Lucy decided to go ahead and have a child, even knowing that he was dying. And they're both doctors; they completely realized um, the the prognosis and went into it with their eyes fully open. You know, one conversation that they had was, "Well, will this make it harder <laughs> to leave? You know, a, a child behind?" And his response, my friend, Pubby, was. Wouldn't that be great if it did? I mean, so for him, having this experience was really meaningful and important. And um, even in knowing that he himself would not be there for um, much of her life, it was still a decision that, that they went into together and jointly and, and freely. So I think people make meaning even under really dire situations. Did you mean, wouldn't
0: it be great if it did make it harder to leave?
1: Yes, exactly. Like what if I wouldn't it be great if I have this experience that is so beautiful and wonderful and meaningful and lovely. And it does make it harder to leave because I have more to say goodbye to. But I did get to have that experience.
0: Right. Like it might be harder, but that doesn't mean it's not worth it. I'm, I'm glad you brought up sort of the values part of this. I want to talk a bit about the role of the the priors we each bring to this decision making culturally, religiously, other pre-existing value frameworks that we each have for meaning-making. I grew up in the Jewish community, and when I was a kid, I learned a story about when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, uh, you know, the Passover story. Uh, And the story goes, the, the men, the Israelite men, didn't want to sleep with their wives because they didn't want to bring kids into the world only to see them become slaves to Pharaoh. But the women disagreed with this logic, They believed that just somehow things would get better and someone would save them, possibly even one of the kids that they could conceive right now. So they seduced their husbands. And, you know, lo and behold, nine months later, Moses was born and he ended up freeing the Israelites from slavery. So, you know, Judaism is on the whole, I would say, a a very pro-Natalist religion. But uh, this specific story made a huge impression on me when i was young and i think it is part of why for me personally i choose to say yes to kids kind of as an expression of hope and a vote of confidence that we can make the world better do you see people often being guided by priors like that and to what extent should we let ourselves be guided by them
1: well, that's a beautiful story i mean i think yes humans make meaning from stories and traditions and that is a really important guide to how we make our big life decisions. So I think that has a really big and important role to play. Um, I think in the case of climate change, we should not be planning for somebody else to save us. We actually have to save ourselves.
0: Right, not relying on a future Moses who may or may not be born, but (laughs) to radically misquote Gandhi, be the Moses you want to see in the world. (laughs)
1: Right. I mean, I think um, it's just impossible to overstate how short and critical time is now. And it is really frustrating and infuriating as the scientists that have been in this now for quite some time and to even look back, actually. So I found an old essay that I wrote when I was in junior high that was about the rainforests. And I, it was in 1991. So I was 13. The Internet was not a thing. Um, I My sources were the magazines that my parents got at home. So it was Good Housekeeping and uh, National Geographic and a couple of books I got from the library. So this was not like super sophisticated research. But even at the time, you know, this long ago, it was already really clear what the problems were and what the solutions were. And namely that, you know, cutting down rainforests is causing climate change. It will, I wrote as a kid, you know, it will be disastrous. Describe the impacts. Um, Of course, I mean, the predictions have... Some of them have started to happen. Some have um, gotten more sophisticated and more detailed, but the fundamentals were all there. So basically, you know, knowing that, okay, we have to stop using fossil fuels. We have to stop destroying nature. We need to find ways of growing food that are working with rather than against nature. We've known that for a really long time, and we're just about out of time to actually make it happen. I mean, we just have a few more years of where we can actually um, live within our remaining carbon budget. So That's all just to say, yes, um, I think absolutely, you know, new generations are a reason for a lot of hope, but we also owe a big responsibility to them to give them reasons for hope. And, you know, we don't have to think about hypothetical future generations to do that. We can listen to existing young people who are very clearly and forcefully demanding their right to a stable climate and therefore to a hopeful future for themselves.
0: Yeah, that actually leads into something I wanted to ask you about, because you write near the end of your book that we should all be asking ourselves, how can I be a good ancestor? I love that framing. Um, But most people aren't used to thinking about how they can be good ancestors to people who will be born hundreds of years down the road. Um, And I I wonder how you think people can be nudged toward that kind of long-termism how you think we can cultivate transgenerational empathy, right? Like empathy for people who don't even exist yet is a helpful strategy to maybe even actually not think that far into the future, but actually just think about one generation ahead
1: or, you know, your your kids' or grandkids' generation? For me, it's actually been really helpful to start by thinking backwards, to think about the past. And where I fit into my own family tree and sort of the story of my family's history. So my great grandma, I didn't meet, but she emigrated from what is now Ukraine in the early 1900s. She had this uh, wedding ring that I now wear sewn into her jacket to escape detection as a deserter. Um, Because if they caught you leaving with your husband, they would know that you were leaving for good. And so this is a piece of carbon, this diamond in her ring that still stays with me and reminds me of her and of this history. But, you know, beyond this particular and specific story, we all are leaving this carbon legacy that will far outlast anything else that we do. Because the carbon that we leave in the atmosphere, some of it will last for 10,000 years or more. So Stonehenge and the Great Pyramids are each about 5,000 years old. They're about halfway to that mark. If you think about just how incredibly long the, the mark that we are leaving on the whole planet is right now, it's really sobering. And I think makes us think about what is the legacy we wanna leave? What is the kind of story that we're writing about humanity? And that that's what we have the opportunity to do right now.
0: What do you say to somebody though, who just says, what do I care what the carbon situation is gonna look like in 10,000 years from now? Like that has no effect on me, I don't even care.
1: Most people do care in some way. I mean, if if there is, I don't think there actually are that many people who truly don't care at all about others or future generations. But if there is someone like that, you can appeal to their selfish interests and say, well, you know, I myself, um, I'm 43. Statistically, I'll live into my mid 80s. I'm going to live to see whether we make this happen or not. Um, depending on the choices, especially we make by 2030, it will determine whether we meet the one and a half or two degree goal or blow way past it. And that means I'm going to see in my own lifetime, most likely, assuming I, I get a chance to live you know, this statistical life, I will see whether or not we make it. And I will see how amazing it is that humanity pulls it together or how terrible it is if, if we don't. So I think, I mean, if if you don't care about anyone else, but only yourself, there there's plenty of reason there. And the more you care about others which I hope you do the more reason there is to engage
0: are you Kimberly scared of what you'll see when you're 80 are you scared as a climate scientist to work your whole life for this goal and potentially not see us all having made the changes we needed to have made
1: that is a really scary prospect i mean i think it it is really terrifying to imagine actually failing When we see so many things still going in the wrong direction and when we see that current policies are wildly insufficient, they're so far from where they need to be, we need to be going so much faster. It is tough, but it is incredibly meaningful. And I do find a lot of motivation from it because it's just so important. And the folks who are working on it are incredible and wonderful. And there are more of us each day. And I mean, I think... Surveys show that most Americans are concerned or alarmed about the climate crisis. So there's this huge untapped well of support for actually solving this problem. So we really do have the potential to do it, but we've got to make make it happen.
0: I like how you talk about the the fight uh, the fight to stave off the climate emergency as itself a source of meaning. Right, like that is something that um, can make sounds like does make your life feel meaningful. And I think like one of the, my favorite paragraphs in your book was this part where you say, in a warming world, all of us urgently need to make choices that support what we genuinely need to say yes to what nourishes us and gives us meaning and makes us feel more alive and only those choices. Put another way, let your focus on meaning, including your concern for the world, Be the excuse you need to say no to the things in your life you don't truly burn for. I read that as saying, okay, this is not a free-for-all. You can't just say yes to everything you want, regardless of the carbon footprint. But you should say yes to things that feel crucial to a meaningful life for you, whether that's having kids or, and doesn't have to be an or, and fighting to stave off climate disaster as you're doing, because... If we don't say yes to the things that make our life feel meaningful, then what are we bothering saving the planet for? Is that a fair distillation of of what you want readers to take away and listeners to take away from your work?
1: Nailed it. (laughs) 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 I think that's great. I mean, and I think us having that, well, this conversation, which I really appreciate, but having these kind of conversations where we interrogate for ourselves, what does that mean for me? Is that about, you know, protecting... Wild places? Is it about nurturing a family? Is it about being part of a community or an organization? I mean, there are different answers for each of us of of what that looks like. But yes, I think that needs to be at the center of what we do because that's why we get out of bed in the morning and that's what will keep us going and and give us joy in in doing it.
0: Thank you so much, Kimberly. And I,
1: I really appreciated that your
0: book talks about the climate science, but also talks about meaning and human emotion, which absolutely factors into all of these decisions, but I think is too often neglected uh, when we just talk about climate in terms of numbers and technological fixes. Um, So I appreciate you as a scientist being willing to talk about the human emotions involved in this.
1: Um, So thank you for that. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm Seagal Samuel, and this is Future Perfect. This episode was produced by Sophie Lalonde. Our editor is Kenny Torella. You can find more at vox.com slash futureperfect.